Hey everyone, welcome to episode 14 of the Aquascaping Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Art. And joining us today as usual is Sean. We're going to be talking about a three-step creative process to help you build a better aquascape, as well as the ins and outs of using a drop checker. I've been looking at some of the best aquascapes in the world, trying to find a pattern, trying to find a, some sort of structure that us everyday people, us guys and girls out there that want to just create a nice looking, good aquascape can follow, some sort of easy process. You know, not the James Finleys and the George Farmers and Udices of the world, but just us everyday people. And what I found is that there's three main elements to any aquascape that draw our attention the most, and that's the plants, the animals, and the hardscape. Now there's secondary elements like substrate, background, lighting, but those are more accents. But those three main elements, the hardscape, the plants, and the animals, we need to connect at least two of them in a meaningful way to create something that speaks to the viewer. Now that can be the fish with the hardscape, it can be the hardscape with the plants, it could be the plants with the fish, it could be the plants with the plants. But we need at least two of those items or two of those main elements connected together somehow to create uh, or to convey to the audience that we as the aquascaper not only have created an ecosystem that's working but have done it in a way that elevates it to an art form now luckily for us art does not have to be complicated but it has to be broken down all the way down to its basic form as a foundation to work on. So I'm going to break this down into three steps. You can do it in any order that you'd like. I've just chosen this order to work with today. Okay, so we have our three elements and we need to choose one to start with. And today I'm going to start with the fish, with the animals. Now, usually that's the last thing that's chosen in the process. After the aquascape's been designed, it's been put together, up and running for a month or so, we go to the local fish store and we try to find something that's going to work within it. But if we choose that in the beginning as the first stage of the creative process before we ever design the aquascape, then everything we do leading up to putting them in there is going to be because of them. And what's going to happen is as we move through steps two and three and build on the design based off of this first step, it's not only going to make it easier for us to choose the items that we use in our aquascape, the hardscape materials and the planting, planting but it's also going to give these layers of complexity in the design that would have been otherwise impossible if we hadn't chosen it in the beginning. Well, how do you know what to select? Well, everything else is going to be based off of this selection. So at this point, you have total freedom. So just choose something that you like. You know, 10 years ago, when I first got into aquariums, I walked into the fish store for the first time and I saw a school of neons and I really wanted them. But I went home and I did research and I got talked out of it by the online community because they're mass produced, some might die, uh, and it's better off to get a different fish. Well, just recently, I finally got neons. I know cardinals are better, but I wish I had done it all the way back then, 10 years ago. So just choose something that you like, uh, no stress on this first step, and then everything else will work off of this. Hey everyone, Sean here. Uh, let's talk about drop checkers. Should you use them? Are they useful? We should first probably talk a little bit about what is a drop checker, what does it do, and how does it work? So a drop checker is a glass or plastic chamber that is inverted 
inside of your tank so that air is trapped inside of it. And at the end, there's a small bulb or um, compartment that has an indicator solution. And that indicator solution is usually a um, colored pH indicator called bromothymol blue. And as the pH of the water that it is in changes, the color that can be observed also changes. And you may ask yourself, well, if there is this gap of air between the solution and the water, how can the pH of that solution, that indicator solution, solution change to show me how much CO2 I have in my water? And the answer to that is as we dissolve CO2 into our tank, it, it becomes dissolved among, among the water molecules. And then that water is passing along the open space of the chamber where the air is trapped and that CO2 also leaves the water into that air chamber. Now when it does that, it also dissolves into the, the solution based upon the concentration of CO2 that's in the chamber. And so as we increase the CO2 that's in the water of our tank, we increase the amount of CO2 that is degassing into the chamber and then dissolving back into the water of the indica indicator solution. And so CO2 forms a, an acid, carbonic acid, as it dissolves into water. And this creates um, or causes the pH to drop, which will cause the uh, color of the uh, indicator solution to change. Now, you can also probably imagine that that takes some time. And that's one of the biggest limitations to using uh, Drop Checker is the time it takes to get your reading. Um, you know, it takes time to dissolve CO2 into your tank. It takes time for that CO2 to uh, diffuse into the chamber and then diffuse into the indicator solution. And so you get a pretty long delay in your reading. So it's not very helpful to know exactly what's going on at an exact moment in time in your tank because the reading is so delayed. Um, I would probably say about 30 minutes to an hour. Well, how can that be useful then if we have such a lag time in our readings? Well, I think that gets to a point um, which I'll probably mention in a lot of different uh, circumstances in this hobby is that it's useful to an extent. It has limitations, uh, lag time being one. Uh, and so we should keep that in mind when we're using it. I like to use drop checkers to get in the ballpark for my CO2. Um, but if it's green, I don't say that's enough CO2. And uh, because of, you really need to observe what's going on in your tank. Uh, I think I've run plenty of tanks where the drop checker actually does turn yellow, uh, particularly at the latter ends of the photo period when CO2 has been running up for a while. And so if I'm seeing good growth and I'm not seeing algae uh, and my drop checker is uh, a dark green, I would consider that enough CO2 for the tank. But if I'm seeing algae and uh, poor growth in my drop checker is this lime green yellow, uh, then I might think that I should probably turn my CO2 up because what I'm observing in the tank is showing me that there is more needed. So I don't look at it as um, the color tells me I have enough or too much or too little. It just gets me an idea of how close I am. Okay, step number two is choosing hardscape materials. So how do we know what to choose? Well, for one, uh, just to keep things simple, I think it's a good rule of thumb to stick with just one hardscape material, whether it's uh, driftwood or whether it's rocks, 
stick to one type of rock, one type of driftwood, and go with that. But how do we know what to choose? We've already established in step number one what our inhabitants are going to be. And we're going to work directly off of that in step number two. Now, the example that I use uh, in my head and that I keep kind of going back to, and I've mentioned it in an earlier podcast, is from Amano's Complete Works book. And he describes seeing angelfish in their natural environment and realizing that their body shape and that the patterns on their body and colors were evolved so that they would disappear into the driftwood and the fallen branches that would fall into their environment. They were able to swim in and out of uh, you know these very thin uh, crevices and that they would also disappear because of their coloration. So that was kind of like uh, you know a, a paradigm shift for him. And going forward in his future aquascapes, he used that. So what we want to do is select a hardscape material that allows us to resemble or mimic some characteristic of the fish that we chose in step number one. Now this doesn't need to be obvious, it can be something very subtle. If we chose angelfish, maybe we choose to get some tall pieces of driftwood so that just like in nature, the angelfish can camouflage itself amongst the shadows and shapes. Or maybe we get driftwood that has the, the shape of the body of the angelfish. Amano did this all the time. If you look at his works that include angelfish and driftwood, the driftwood a lot of the times looks very much like the body shape of the angelfish. Even if it's exaggerated, the shape still has its origins from the angelfish's body. If you look at his 13-foot aquascape that he had in his own home, and those pieces of driftwood that extend outside of the aquarium, they look just like angelfish. And he kept angelfish in that aquascape. But maybe you didn't choose angelfish. Maybe you chose uh, something like a black neon uh, that's you know similar to a neon or a cardinal tetra, but has a black stripe across it horizontally. You know, maybe in that case you do like an iwagumi type setup where you're using like a gray rock or gray rocks that are more horizontal and create a dark shadow below it, a dark horizontal shadow below it, mimicking the pattern on the black neon. We look for patterns and similarities all the time. It's programmed into our DNA. That's how we make sense of the world. So when we incorporate patterns and designs into our aquascape, it's going to feel more natural to us, and we're going to be more mesmerized by it. And in nature, it may seem chaotic, but when you really get down to it, at some level there's a pattern occurring, uh, and and it's happening all around us. I think the beauty of Nature Aquarium is taking that fact and then just uh, amplifying it. It's very similar to fractals or fractal designs where if you're zoomed all the way out on the design, it looks very similar or almost exactly the same as zoomed into any magnification on the design itself. So if you zoomed into 400 times or 600 times or 800 times, it looks almost the same as being zoomed completely out. We're trying to do the same thing with our aquascape. So no matter if we're zoomed all the way in to the fish that's inside or zoomed all the way out to the entire aquascape, they have similar shapes, patterns, and colors. Another limitation to consider when using a drop checker is a limitation imposed upon the method 
by the type uh, or method of CO2 dissolution you're using. And so if you use an atomizer uh, that produces a lot of really fine small bubbles that are circulating in your tank, those bubbles are going to enter that, that chamber directly. They're not going to diffuse into the water and then out of the water into the chamber. You're going to be putting CO2 gas directly into that chamber, which is going to give you this faster, um, falsely high reading uh, from the drop checker. And so that kind of means you need to put your drop checker in a place where those bubbles aren't moving up into the chamber or they're being pushed away from the chamber so that really you're getting the least amount of bubbles entering the drop checker chamber. Um, so consider that in, in, in the location where you put your drop checker. Uh, I know people sometimes like to use multiple drop checkers in different locations of their tank to get an idea um, if they're getting good distribution of CO2, if it's um, balanced or if it's equivalent in one side of the tank or the other. A couple places I like to put my drop checker uh, when I'm using one is I like to put it right near the outlet um, because the outlet tends to push bubbles away from it. Another place that might be good, I haven't done, but it actually might work pretty well, is um, in a lower portion of the tank where bubbles are being pushed down, but they're not traveling up into the drop checker. And so uh, basically that's the idea is you want to prevent your bubbles, especially when using an atomizer or a diffuser from entering the chamber. Otherwise it's going to be difficult to get a good reading from the drop checker. Another limitation of using a drop checker uh, is the subjective quality of, uh, of observing a color and relating that to a level of a CO2, a number like 25 or 35 parts per million because all of us are gonna see it a little bit differently. And so it's something to be aware of when using it. I think these tools can be useful, particularly drop checkers, uh, especially when you know the limitations, you know um, how much information they're going to give you and the quality of that information. Uh, sometimes, many times, we find ourselves getting so focused on the equipment, uh, the test kits, the gear, things like that, that we forget to use our observation and that is a critical component of getting things right. Um, so don't, don't uh, sell yourself short. Learn to observe the tank and learn to make adjustments based upon your instincts from what you're seeing um, and don't rely too heavily on tools like a drop checker. And interestingly, a lot of drop checkers come with these instructions to use aquarium water. Just take the water from your tank and then drop in a few drops of the indicator solution and you have your drop checker. Well, there is a problem with that. Uh, if we don't have a standardized KH value, carbonate hardness, uh, that is buffering that solution, you're gonna get a lot of different readings um, from a lot of different people because they're gonna have different KH values for their water that's in that indicator chamber. The KH value buffers this, the uh, pH value. And so if you have a high KH value inside that chamber, let's say, eight or so it's going to take a lot more co2 to get that color to move to change because of that it's recommended that everybody uses four degrees kh solution or water in their drop checkers you then add the four degrees kh uh, water to your drop checker and then a few drops of the indicator solution or you could add your pre-mixed indicator solution to the drop checker and then find a good place to put it in your aquarium 
and uh, observe the color change over time. You're not going to see this happen quickly, um, but put it in a place where bubbles aren't entering, where there's a good amount of water flow, uh, and consider using uh, two enlarger tanks to make sure that um, you're getting a good distribution of CO2 throughout the tank. All right, it's time to choose the plants. That's why we're all into aquascaping. It's because of the plants. So how do we choose some that can make a connection to the hardscape or to the, the fish that we chose? Let's start with the fish. Let's say we want to keep a school of rasbora. And the coloration is red in the front and a triangular black shape in the back. What can we pick that will go along with that? Well, again, let's look to Amano. On page 76 and 77 of his Complete Works book, he has yet another great example. And what he did was he took uh, a red type of cryptocarini and he planted it, them in bunches. And when that's done, it has a red tint and the in between the leaves create shadows, a lot of times being triangular. So it very closely mimics the pattern and coloration of the rasbora. And when you see them together as a viewer, you make that connection and you understand why he did it. Now, you can also base your plant selection off of your hardscape. But again, it's just taking one characteristic. So maybe you're, you're, the rocks uh, that you're using have a red hue to it or a red uh, tint to it. Maybe you select some red accent plants that are worked throughout your aquascape to pull it all together. Or you have some narrow pieces of driftwood that kind of flow through your aquascape. Maybe you choose some long, flowy plants like uh, some sort of Echinodorus or Eleocaris or microsorm, you know, uh, some narrow-leaf java fern or Blixa japonica, something that uh, has those same type of characteristics. And you don't have to do it for all of the plants. This is just taking one and incorporating it in there. It's just really this is an exercise to help you narrow down and simplify your selections uh, in the beginning, in the, in the planning stages of the process. All right, guys, now that we understand the, the, the principles behind this creative thinking process, it's time to put it into practice. Well, I've made it easy for us. I made a little worksheet, and I put it up on the website. If you go to www.aquascapingpodcast.com, check under the show notes for this episode, episode 14, and you'll see it there. It's a download. It's a very simple worksheet, but it'll help you put all these theories into practice. You can send your comments and questions to aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com. Check us out on iTunes. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and rate there. And the website is www.aquascapingpodcast.com. All right, everybody. Have a good week, and we'll see you next time. One more way before the fall.